Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Okay, folks, we're uh, here today. Today is September 9th, 2022. We're here with Brad Snyder, who has written a very impressive book, Legal History, about Felix Frankfurter. The title of the book is Democratic Justice, and the subtitle is worth reading as well. It's called Felix Frankfurter, the Supreme Court, and the Making of the Liberal Establishment. So we're going to have to ask, or I'll have to ask questions that answer those implicit questions about the liberal establishment and Frankfurter's role in it. So anyway, so Brad is uh, with us. You're in Washington, I take it? Yes. Okay. So Brad, tell me a little bit about your background. Where do you teach and where did you teach before? Well, Bill, Bill, first, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm kind of really honored and delighted to be on the podcast and a consumer of your own work. So, um, so thank you for having me on. I, I teach at um, Georgetown University Law Center and have done so for the past five years. Uh, before that, uh, I was a law professor at the University of Wisconsin and the home of Willard Hurst, where you know the spirit of Willard Hurst, who was a great legal historian, just seemed to still be in the halls. So it was a really great place um, to be an aspiring legal historian. And I, I learned um, a tremendous amount there and really started a lot of the research at Wisconsin uh, that led to this book. Don't they even have a, a uh, graduate program in legal history at the University of Wisconsin Law School? They, they, what they have is they have a summer program uh, that for graduate students, um, it's called the Hearst Fellows Program and enables graduate students to kind of get together and talk about their work and what they're working on and to get some mentorship from legal historians who are already in the field. It's a wonderful program. All right. Uh, I want to talk about your book, which came out, uh, is it this month that it came out or was it last month? It came out October 23rd. Okay. And it's noteworthy because it's published by what I think is the best press in America or best publisher in America, uh, Norton. I really do think Norton. I've done podcasts with maybe half a dozen Norton authors, and I'm really impressed with Norton's uh, books. I, I am. I always have been. In fact, I have scheduled uh, uh, a podcast with the general editor of the new, I think it will be the 10th edition of the Norton Anthology of American Literature. And I'm really looking forward to that. So anyway, Norton's a terrific publisher. It's a trade publisher. And that's very important to establish that you've been able to persuade the uh, powers to be that Frankfurter is worth talking about to a major big audience. So how did that come about? How did you get Norton to read this is something America needs to know about. Well, well, I had a remarkable editor, um, John Glussman's the editor in chief at Norton, and and he uh, believed in the project when I presented it to him as much as I did, and he didn't know that the book would come in as long as it did, but he um I, when I presented him with the the whole manuscript after spending basically a year trying to tighten it up as much as possible, I said, John, this is about as tight as I can get it. I know it's over my word limit, but I'd really like you to read it. And he took it home over a holiday break, and he said, I expected to read two or three pages and tell you it was too long. He read the entire thing, 
He had editorial comments on the entire thing, but he said, I want to publish this in full. And John really fought to have this book published um, in total. And, and I'm in his debt for that. Right. He, he was he was in the trenches with me, making sure we could put out the best possible book. Well, to, to be sure, your book is not for the faint hearted. It is 711 pages. That, of course, does not include the acknowledgments and all the end notes and all the rest. So it's a very impressive book. I want to ask you later about how you went about writing the book. That is to say, how did you acquire and go through all the material that you did? Uh, in fact, what I want to do in the podcast in the hour or so that we've uh, set out for this is in a way divided into two parts. One is about substance, about Frankfurter and his times, uh, and also about process, asking why Frankfurter, uh, why did you decide to write about him as opposed to somebody else, and how you went about writing the book. But first, let's talk about Frankfurter. Tell us who Felix Frankfurter was. Um, when did he die, for instance? Well, he died in 1965. He was born, I may get it wrong, in 1882 or 1883. He came, the, the, I think the most important thing, moment in Frankfurter's life, or the way sort of he tells his own story, is when he came to this country at age 11, not speaking a word of English. Right? He, he arrives um, at Ellis Island without a word of English. Uh, his family moves into lower Manhattan, not the Lower East Side, where you might have poorer Eastern European immigrants, but a slightly more um, upscale working class neighborhood, maybe a, a, a lower middle class neighborhood of German speaking immigrants. And I think that makes a big difference you know, in how we came to this country and being from a German speaking country as opposed to an Eastern European one. And But he just thrived and he really credited, as I wrote in the beginning of the book, his first public school teacher for threatening his classmates with corporal punishment if they spoke to him in German. Because of course, this public school was in the middle of a German speaking neighborhood. And she said, if you, you know, she threatened to hit those students at a time when it was okay to hit students, right? Um, and, um, and, and so they didn't speak any German to him and forced Felix to learn English. And, and he credits that teacher um, with putting him on this road to a rapid success. I mean, I think the next big thing for Felix is City College of New York, right? Free public college. So when, when he's, you know, 19, he he enters this combined high school college program and 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 finishes it in five years. I mean, he's out the I mean, he's out the door almost by 1920 out of this 19 or 20 years old out the door of, of City College of New York. He has to go and work for a year and get a little work and life experience and earn a little money before he goes to law school. But it's, it's really an amazing American story for someone to arrive here at 11 without speaking a, a word of English. And by age 26, he's pals with former President Theodore Roosevelt. That, that's, that's an amazing thing. Well, I should give maybe a little bit of context here because Felix ends up on the Supreme Court. First, he goes to the Harvard Law School to teach and then the Supreme Court because he actually is so far in our past now, given that he did die in 65, and I think he left the court, was it 62 or 63? 62, right. Uh, he's, and he's not talked about much. So like, in a way, we have to remind the audience that he was indeed a Supreme Court justice for more than, what was it, 1939 to 62? Correct, so, 23 years. 23 years, that's a pretty long uh, record of service. 
All right, so he gets out of uh, City College of New York and he goes to the Harvard Law School. How did he fare there? I mean, he finished first in his class, right? That was the moment of kind of his ascendancy, right? When when you, he finishes first in his Harvard Law School class, um, that puts him, you know, in an elite group of, of law students. Uh, the problem for him at the time was Wall Street law firms, most of them wouldn't hire anybody who was Jewish. So he had to go around his third year of law school and, a, and he went from Wall Street firm to Wall Street firm and not very many of these firms were interested in hiring him. And a lot of them treated him pretty shabbily for someone who um, graduated first in his class. He, he took with him these little notes written by the dean of Harvard Law School, James Barr Ames. He didn't even know what the notes said. And he handed them to the partner that he met with. And one of the partners looked at the notes and goes, yeah, that's Dean Ames's handwriting. And, you know, what Dean Ames really said, I know, because he wrote it to somebody else, was that um, Frankfurt was one of the most gifted students that he taught in, you know, the last 10 years. And and these these WASP partners at Wall Street law firms were astonished. Um, fortunately oh. for Frankfurter, um, about three months in at one of these law firms, Henry Stimson, who was the new U.S. attorney for the Southern District, called him up and said, I wanted to talk to you. Frankfurter came and met with him. Stimson offered him as a, a job as an assistant United States attorney, and that changed the trajectory of Frankfurter's life. It showed him what he could be as a public servant representing the United States government because Felix Frankfurter was an American first, right? That was his religion, was kind of Americanism. He, had, he was not a practicing Jew. He had given up the practice of Judaism at around age 15, and you know, he believed that coming to America was um, the greatest thing that ever happened to him. Um, one of the facts, one of the many facts that jumps off the page in your book is that at the uh, tender age, I don't want to use a cliche, but he really is a very young man. He's a 29 years old, I think. He's offered a judgeship, a federal judgeship. How did that come about? Yeah, you know, and the, the evidence on that is a little sketchy. I think he was not actually offered the judgeship, but he was asked if he was interested in the judgeship. But Henry Stimson, who was then his boss in the War Department, says, hey, there's an opening in the Southern District of New York. Would you be interested? Right, and Stimson really had President Taft's ear. He was very loyal to President Taft. When Taft and Theodore Roosevelt have their break, right around 1910, 1911, leading up to the 1912 election, Stimson sides with Taft instead of Stimson's mentor, Theodore Roosevelt. He, he sort of stays with the president who he's working for here. So he had Taft's ear. And, and I think that that judgeship was Frankfurter's for the taking. And Frankfurter thought, hey, I'm too young to go on the bench at age 29. Ironically, there have been a fair number of appointees in the last 20 or 30 years. Not 29, but there was one in Texas, I believe 32. It is awfully young to be a federal judge. And he has shown, ironically a little bit, I guess, great maturity in turning it down. So how long does he work for Stimson and when does he get to the Harvard Law School? He works for Stimson through the 1912 election around 19... And Stimson actually leaves the War Department and, and Frankfurter stays for a little while for Lindley Garrison's the new Secretary of War. And he stays on for a bit to work for Garrison. And then around 1913, Harvard offers him a job. And it's around 19, 
14 in that fall, I'd, I'd say, that he starts working at Harvard. So he worked for Stimson basically on and off from 1905 to 1913. And you know, he was loyal to, to Henry Stimson for the rest of his life, right? And, 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 um, and their paths crossed frequently, didn't they? They, they sure did. They, they sure did. Uh, you know, Stimson was really um, Frankfurter's ideal public servant. Right where he saw somebody who, who wasn't in public service for himself, but he was in public service to kind of help his country. And I, I think that in, in many ways, the example that Stimson set was the reason why Frankfurter tried to persuade all of his Harvard Law students not to go to big Wall Street firms, not to go to big Boston firms, not to go to big Chicago or Washington firms, but to go into the, the, the best thing they could do would be to go work for the federal government. So. He goes uh, eventually up to the Harvard Law School to teach, but he, he, he maintains a very public presence. He becomes, in a way, the most um, visible um, liberal advocate in the country. Is that a fair assessment? Totally fair. Um, Louis Brandeis, who's another friend of Frankfurter's, um, at one point remarked that Frankfurter was the most useful lawyer in the United States. Right, it, Just because he could do so many things, he had um, become an expert in the kind of burgeoning administrative state, right? He was a, in the this sort of nascent field of, of administrative law, right? He was a labor law expert. His good friend uh, was a guy named Robert Valentine, and they were very interested in labor management relations. And he served in the War Department um, during World War I, um, where in, in 1917, he took a break from Harvard Law School, and he was really trying to resolve strikes throughout the United States during the war. So Frankfurter has this labor expertise, and then he's also <laughs> teaching criminal law, right? So, um, you know, he's got expert federal power, you know, power, I mean, hydroelectric power, uh, labor law, criminal law. He's really a jack of all trades, and he knows so many people in public life that, that you know, he's not just a law professor living in the ivory tower. Now, that criminal law that he's teaching comes in handy because he gets involved in perhaps the most famous criminal case in the 20s, Sacco and Vanzetti. No doubt. And, and Bill, one thing I think people forget about Frankfurter's, his major first job out of law school is as an assistant federal prosecutor, right? It's not that he's just dabbling in, in criminal law, you know, teaching it without any experience, or he's, he's injecting himself into this Sacco and Vanzetti case, right? These two Italian anarchists who are accused of murdering a paymaster, right, and stealing a, a bunch of money from a, a, a shoe factory, right, and, you know, are on trial for their lives. When he gets involved in that case after the trial, it's, it's as somebody who's prosecuted a lot of people in his own life and, and knows um, what a fair prosecution is or isn't. And th there was a long time that Frankfurter wanted nothing to do with the case of Sacco and Vanzetti. They went on trial in 1921. It wasn't really until 1923 um, where one of the witnesses for the prosecution said that he had deceived the jury about ballistics that Frankfurter decided to read the record and see for himself whether or not Sacco and Vanzetti had received a fair trial. And his conclusion was they had not received a fair trial they had been railroaded by the prosecutor and by, especially by the trial judge in the case. And, you know, 
Frankfurter by injecting himself in that case, first by writing an article in the Atlantic Monthly and then um, writing um, an influential book in 1927 while that case was on appeal with the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, that's the state's highest court, he injected himself into that case and he became public enemy number one in Boston. It wasn't Sacco and Vanzetti who were on trial anymore. It was Felix Frankfurter's reputation that was on trial in, in, in really old Boston, that sort of wasp, old money element of Boston, which for years hated Louis Brandeis, turned all their fire onto Frankfurter. Well, Frankfurter uh, does something else. Uh, aside from being a public uh, advocate for uh, liberal causes, he becomes something of a public intellectual. He's one of the founding editors of the New Republic. That's a whole different side of him. Yeah, he was a good writer with the New Republic. Uh, you know, his writing later is criticized as kind of overlong and turgid and justifiably so. But his early articles in the New Republic bill are really, really good. And, um, you know, he, he really, um, that was a great medium for him to write these both signed articles and unsigned editorials in the New Republic. Um, you know, he was one of the founding editors and not founding editors, but incorporators of the New Republic. He, he, he refused to be one of the founding editors, but he and Herbert Crowley, who founded the magazine, and Walter Littman, these are his very good friends from his time when he lived in Washington, and they thought that they, that they could use the New Republic to be the voice of a TR-style progressivism. And, um, you know, so he was very involved with that magazine. And, and I think the most important thing, Bill, was that at the time, in the teens and the early 20s, I think Frankfurter was really the foremost critic of a very conservative Supreme Court. He was really holding the court's feet to the fire in kind of a public way with kind of blistering criticism of the court's decisions and, and, and holding up Oliver Wendell Holmes as kind of the only justice on the court and maybe Louis Brandeis when he gets on there in, in 1916 um, as the justices are who are doing their jobs properly and, and the rest of them um, are, are really reactionary and undermining our democracy. All right, you've brought up the magic uh, term Supreme Court. Now, there are two things about Frankfurter when it comes to the Supreme Court before he gets there that matter. One is that he does a lot of work on the history of the court and actually also work on the current operation of the court. And on top of that, he has this personal connection with members of the court that is in many ways just unprecedented. Tell us about those two things. Yeah, two two of his really good friends were Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who he met as a young um, federal government official in Washington, and he used to have um, Holmes over regularly to his house. It was called the House of Truth, was the group house that he lived in, and Holmes would come over regularly. He loved to interact with the young progressives at the House of Truth, even though I wouldn't characterize Holmes himself as a progressive. He was really interested in their ideas. And so he became very friendly um, with Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. He also became very friendly uh, with um, Louis Brandeis, who was much more introverted, much more kind of self-controlled um, than the extroverted Holmes. But nonetheless, uh, there were a lot of similarities between Frankfurter and, and Brandeis beyond both being Jewish, right? I think they both um, believe strongly in this idea of um, organized labor as a way to produce um, what they called an industrial democracy. And um, they had similar ideas about antitrust law, and there was just a real affinity 
between them. Um, Brandeis got Frankfurter very active in Zionist causes. So to, to answer your question directly, he knew from both Holmes and Brandeis what was going on with the day-to-day -day work of the court. And he knew about the quirks of all of the other seven justices from his conversations with Holmes and with Brandeis. And what about the work he was doing as, a, as an academic on the court? What was that about? Yeah, I mean, he, there were a number of things he was doing. I think one legacy of his was this annual volume that he would put out in the Harvard Law Review called The Business of the Supreme Court. Eventually, what he would do is he would um, enlist the top, a top student at Harvard to co-author this business of the Supreme Court with him. So there were some really famous people, James Landis being um, really the first one who was an amazing legal mind in his own right and a top student at Harvard. And he would co-author these businesses of the Supreme Court. Each year there would be the you know October term 1929 business of the Supreme Court and the October term 1930 business of the Supreme Court. And he would really analyze the court. And this is, Bill is really a, period of departure for the court. I think what inspired Frankfurter was the Judiciary Act of 1925, right, which changed the way the court operated because after that Judiciary Act of 1925, as you know, Bill, the court had much more control over its docket, right? It could pick and choose which cases it wanted to hear and it didn't have to hear everything on kind of an automatic appeal. So um, he was really, he, Frankfurter, was really interested with how the court is operating with this newfound autonomy. All right, so there's also this, this very uh, involved political side that he has in the 30s at least that brings him into the orbit of Franklin Roosevelt. How much of an, of, of an intimate, if that's the right phrase, was he with Roosevelt? Well, you know, here's one thing that I think that's um, interesting is, you know, Frankfurter um, supported Robert La Follette, a third party candidate in 1924. Um, and then in 1928, um, he supported Al Smith. Um, he wasn't really a Democrat or a Republican in a traditional sense. But I think one thing he recognized in 1928, unlike his friend Walter Lippmann, he saw Franklin Roosevelt when he was running for governor of New York in 1928 as the future of the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party as the future liberal party which was not obvious then right and so he he really got to know roosevelt after he got elected governor roosevelt liked smart people right and liked consulting with smart people and he would um consult frankfurter about labor issues about hydroelectric power issues even during um his presidential campaign in 1932 he would go to frankfurter for political advice and so um, Frankfurter became kind of this jack of all trades outside advisor to Roosevelt and, and Roosevelt would invite him up to Hyde Park and he and, you know, and Frankfurter's wife, Marion, and they would um, stay at Hyde Park and, 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 you know, Frankfurter and, and Franklin Roosevelt would talk late into the night about different problems. And so they became very, very close, uh, very close. Now, whether or not you know, Frankfurter had a lot of close advisors. I don't, I'm not, I, what I don't want to say is that Frankfurter was his only close advisor, right? Because um, one thing about Franklin Roosevelt was really hard to tell was who he agreed with and who he disagreed with. And he relied on a lot of different voices to give him advice. But I think he really valued Frankfurter's ideas and Frankfurter's opinions. And um, it was a relationship that was pretty deep. It goes all the way back 
mind you, to the Woodrow Wilson administration um, when Frankfurter um, was in the War Department and 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 uh, and Franklin Roosevelt was the Assistant Secretary of Navy. They they knew them each other back then. So Roosevelt is frustrated in his first term because he doesn't have any opportunities to put one of his people on the Supreme Court. But in his second term, he gets a few opportunities. In the end, of course, he gets to, I think, nominate eight or nine justices. Frankfurter is not the first one he nominates. Um, when does Frankfurter get the call to go to the Supreme Court? Well, mind you, Bill, like when Frankfurter starts his first term as president, right, right before he, he starts that term, right before he's about to be sworn in, he tries to be persuade Frankfurter to um, be the Solicitor General of the United States representing the United States government before the Supreme Court, and Frankfurter turns him down. And, and Roosevelt says, look here, I'm, I'm talking to you like I'm, you know, your Dutch uncle here. Right. The only way I'm going to be able to nominate you to the Supreme Court is not as a Harvard law professor who defended Sacco and Vanzetti, but as a Harvard law professor who defended the United States government before the Supreme Court of the United States. And Frankfurter says, I think I can do more for you from the outside. And he meant more for Roosevelt's administration. And I think Frankfurter was right about that. But I think he might have been on the court sooner had he accepted Roosevelt's um, solicitor general invitation, right? Stanley Reed, first, Roosevelt's first nominee is Hugo Black in 37, right? And I think it's Stanley Reed in 38. Well, Stanley Reed was Roosevelt's solicitor general. And I, I think had Frankfurter accepted Roosevelt's offer to be solicitor general, he might have been on the court in 37 or 38. And instead, he's Roosevelt's third nominee in 1939, when um, after Be Benjamin Cardozo dies, um, mm -hmm. he, he replaces Cardozo. And, you know, yep. that was a bitter fight, right? Both to get Frankfurter nominated and to get him confirmed. Now, there, there was a lot of talk in the press about how it was expected that Frankfurter, uh, because of his background, both academically and politically, would be the leader on the court. Where did that idea come from? Can you give us some specifics as to who was touting him as the next leader of the court? I, I think people saw him, well, first of all, Robert Jackson, right, who was then the Solicitor General, went to Roosevelt. You know, Roosevelt waited many months after Cardozo's death to name a nominee. He wanted to wait until after the November elections. He didn't want it to be a, you know, kind of this political football. And, and so there was lots of lobbying between the conservative and liberal wings of the New Deal and, and Jackson, who was representing the more liberal wing of the New, Dealer, Neil, New Deal, the kind of young Turks. He said, you know, that Frankfurter was the only one who could stand up to Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes and set him straight um, about um, a proper interpretation of the Constitution. I th think people thought, given Frankfurter, just the sheer number of people he knew in the administration and his effectiveness during the New Deal in the 30s, right? Frankfurter spent most of the summer of 1935 in Washington helping finalize Roosevelt's sort of what we would call today his second New Deal, right? And, and I, I think people thought, this guy gets along with everybody. He's going to get a He's going to be able to charm everyone on the Supreme Court. And, and, and that turned out not to be true. 
I mean, ironically, Bill, he got along very well with Chief Justice Hughes. He probably, you know, they he loved Charles Evans Hughes. He didn't um, set himself up in opposition to Chief Justice Hughes. He quickly warmed to Chief Justice Hughes. Well, he was a very impressive fellow, not just because he was tall and out of uh, central casting. That's what he was. He had that great beard, uh, but he was also a very smart guy, a really smart guy. With really, political experience as well. Really smart, right? Former governor of New York, former um, Secretary of State Hughes. I, I think Frankfurter respected smart people, right? I, I think he he valued intelligence, and I, I think he saw um, he he was sort of mesmerized with the way Hughes both ran oral argument and ran the conference. And and um, all right. Well, what I want to get to next is uh, the, the reputation of Frankfurter, because we've established that he's a liberal. He comes onto the court with the expectation he's going to lead an increasingly liberal court, because as Roosevelt has more opportunities to put people on the court, of course, he puts liberals on the court who are going to be sympathetic to his uh, agenda, I guess you would say. So Hugo Black is a fiery liberal. Um, um, William O. Douglas is known as a liberal. Robert Jackson is known as a liberal. And then it kind of goes wrong for Frankfurter in the sense that what he hoped for didn't actually happen. He didn't become the leader of the court. Now, this becomes kind of a uh, point of contention among legal historians because, uh, and you take this on uh, head on, a lot of people believe, in fact, I wrote a book about this, uh, some others have written books as well, that uh, Frankfurter changed his stripes uh, kind of cut off his nose to spite his face because he couldn't get the other liberals on the court to follow him. So you don't agree with that. Tell me, and I'm not disputing, <laughs> I, I welcome your, your uh, point of view. I don't want you to think we're having an argument because we're not. Tell me why you think the standard interpretation of Frankfurter's at least early career in the court goes wrong. Bill, I wouldn't argue with you because I'm a big admirer of your book, so uh, I, I, I wouldn't do that. Um, oh, you're the you're the perfect guest, by the way. <laughs> so, so, but one thing I would say is that if Frankfurter were with us on this podcast, is he would reject labels like liberal or conservative, right? He he um he thought that that's like sort of overly simplistic. Right and not really a good way of talking about the justices. I think 1937 was really that switch in time by the Supreme Court, right, where the Supreme Court in 1935 and 1936 is striking down all of a lot of Roosevelt's New Deal programs. They're striking down state minimum wage laws, and then Roosevelt in February of 1937 introduces his court packing plan, and the court, um, although. Some of these votes occurred before Roosevelt introduced the plan um, with regard to minimum wage laws. They start upholding state minimum wage laws and the court starts upholding Roosevelt's New Deal programs. I think that constitutional crisis, because it was a constitutional crisis where you had a Supreme Court um, in opposition to a overwhelmingly elected president. Um, Roosevelt was, was elected by reelected by a landslide in 1936. Um, the United States Congress was overwhelmingly um, Democratic with a capital D, right, dominated by Democrats. And I think that the Supreme Court put itself in opposition to the people's representatives in Congress um, and, and in, in the executive branch. And 
different justices took away different lessons from that. And Frankfurter's takeaway from that crisis was that the court in most cases, not all but most, should defer to the elected branches. Right, and he oh, didn't want to be like that. Stop for a second. Yeah, Brian, let me stop you. He had gotten his uh, guidance on this from a legendary Harvard professor, Thayer, forgotten his first name right now, who said that he, he applied a kind of criminal law standard where beyond a reasonable doubt, unless it's beyond a reasonable doubt that the statute in question is unconstitutional, let it stand. Let the government do its work. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Yeah, but That's I think if, if we're really true to Thayer, right? Um, if we're really true to Thayer, it's James Bradley Thayer. He was only talking about federal laws, right? He thought okay. in a in a federal system, and and you know Robert Jackson and Oliver Wendell Holmes believe that the same thing. It's it's one thing to be deferential to federal laws, but that state laws, given um, the Reconstruction amendments, should you know would receive more scrutiny, right? That it was the role of, a, of the federal government to strike down state laws um, that might um, interfere not only with people's rights, but also the operation of the federal government. All right, so when the uh, Supreme Court gets a chance to uh, uh, pass on this economic legislation of the New Deal uh, after the switch in time, uh, what was uh, Frankfurter's reaction to that? Is that consistent with or in opposition to his general jurisprudential philosophy. I mean, the, the court sort of, you know, deferring to economic legislation. I, I think he was all in favor of deferring to federal economic, you know, legislation. Uh, you know, I think that what Frankfurter was working out for the just as a justice and what was challenging for him and for Hugo Black and for um, William O. Douglas was the issues suddenly changed. Right. It was yes. no. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it, it was no longer about whether um, Congress was exceeding its powers under the Commerce Clause or whether Congress had delegated too much power to a federal administrative agency because the court was upholding all sorts of federal economic legislation. It decided in a case called Caroline Products that it would defer to even the most ridiculous piece of federal economic legislation, of which Caroline Products really was. It was a federal filled milk law, right? It was really a product of the dairy industry that didn't want any non-dairy competitors. But be that as it may, the court in the uh, that majority opinion said, we're going to uphold that law because it's economic legislation and the people are perfectly willing to elect new people who can overturn it. I, Frankfurter was pretty much in favor with that idea. Okay. So tell us how that famous footnote four in that case changed the the, the dynamic on the court when it comes to individual liberties as opposed to economic legislation. Yeah, so Harlan Fiststone is the author of Caroline Products, and he dropped a footnote in that opinion that said, even though we're going to defer to all types of economic legislation, even economic legislation that seems kind of ridiculous, right? There are other instances where we might take a harder look at a federal or a state law. And there, there were three paragraphs in this footnote. The, the first category was um, Bill of Rights, right? Things in the first eight amendments, right? Like free speech, right? That was really something that um, Chief Justice Hughes suggested in that footnote. The, the second paragraph um, was um, defects in the political process. And by that, um, 
Stone really meant voting rights. They might take a look at uh, a harder look at something that impaired voting rights. And then the last part um, was um, when de discrete and insular minorities are shut out of that political process. And he, they might take a harder look at when a minority group is really um, being unfairly, um, you know, the political process just doesn't work for them for whatever reason, either they don't have the voting rights, like in the case of African-Americans in the South, um, they not only don't have the right to vote, but that you know, dominant white majority um, is, is using um, its power um, to, to disadvantage African-Americans throughout the South. So you, know, you can see where Stone's at, where he's targeting Bill of Rights protections, voting, and, and discrete and insular minorities. Frankfurter did not like footnote four. Neither, mind you, did Hugo Black. Hugo Black did not join Hugo uh, footnote four, right? And I think both of them saw um, those categories um, as a little bit too amorphous and and um, and and not defined enough for them. So I, I don't they, they they didn't like that. There wasn't enough certainty in footnote four for Black, and I just don't think Frankfurter um, was a huge fan of it. Yeah. He uh, goes on, Frankfurter does, to have a uh, personal feud with Black, which we'll get to perhaps. But where he also what he had was a feud with him about these uh, Bill of Rights that you mentioned, these um, rights set out in the Constitution. And in a way, it crystallizes their different view of what the Supreme Court should be doing. Tell us about Hugo Black and this idea of incorporation, total incorporation, and how, on the other hand, Frankfurter had a very different view and didn't want to simply um, set up this standard that was going to apply to each and every state. Yeah. How did that work, this feud? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't call it a feud. I'd say there are differences of opinion. I think for one of Frankfurter's problems is he tended to personalize his disputes. But I think Frankfurter and Hugo Black had the same goal, and that was to cabin judicial discretion. They just had different ways of getting there. Right. Hugo Black believed, I think, 100 percent correctly that the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment applied the first eight amendments to the states. Right. Before the passage of the 14th Amendment, there's an 1833 case called Barron v. Baltimore. It was authored by Chief Justice John Marshall, and it said the first eight amendments don't apply to the states. Right. Well, the people who wrote the 14th Amendment, they said, hey. The, the first eight amendments, they apply to the states now. And I think Hugo Black is absolutely right that the Privileges or Immunities Clause um, applies um, those first eight amendments to the states. Frankfurter, though, preferred a different way. Frankfurter wanted to follow precedent. He wanted to follow a precedent called Palco versus Connecticut that was written um, by, by, um, by Justice Cardozo that said, look, um, in order for one of these provisions in the Bill of Rights to apply to the states, it has to be fundamental to ordered liberty, right? Frankfurter believed that he could cabin the court's discretion largely by following precedent, and Black liked really bright line rules, and he thought total incorporation was an easier way to do it and would, would constrain judges more. I think they were trying to get throughout their careers to the same goal, and they just had different ways of going about doing it. Now, how did the rest of the court, you have for a period of time, a pretty stable court, now much change in personnel. How did the rest of the court respond to this disagreement between Black and, and uh, Frankfurter? 
Well, I think Frankfurter won the battle on incorporation, right? So the, the case is Adamson versus California, and, and Frankfurter has a majority in that case, and Black is, is in dissent on the total incorporation issue. But I really think Hugo Black won the war on that um, total incorporation issue because um, eventually William Brennan takes a selective incorporation approach through the due process clause of the 14th Amendment and really incorporates and applies to the states just about all the provisions of the first eight amendments. Not all of them, but almost all of them. So really, Hugo Black is vindicated. And I really think um, Hugo Black has a better view of the 14th Amendment history. I think where there was more disagreement between Black and Frankfurter, where um, Black thought that the First Amendment had a preferred position um, among the first eight amendments, that the First Amendment was more important than the others and should be enforced more strictly than the other um, eight amendments. And, and Frankfurter really rejected that preferred position approach. But I, I just, one thing I want to get to on this podcast is Hugo Black, Senator from Alabama, New Dealer, um, one of Roosevelt's um, really main lieutenants in the United States Senate, um, Felix Frankfurter, outside advisor, working on Roosevelt's New Deal legislation, huge admirer of Hugo Black when he was in the Senate, stood up for Hugo Black after the allegations um, that Black had been a member of the Ku Klux Klan. There is a lot of mutual respect there. And I know that Frankfurter liked to vent to his friends about Hugo Black and personalize their disputes. But I think if you look at the trajectory of both of their lives, that, that it ends in a relationship of mutual respect. You can't say the same for that between Frankfurter and, and William O. Douglas. They, they, they just got under each other's skin and, and it was really total enmity on both sides, right? Hugo Black is a totally different deal. Well, I think Mel Yurofsky, the, the great legal historian, has talked about how at the end of their, end of Frankfurter's life anyway, uh, there was a, an actual warmth between them. Not yeah. only did they bury the hatchet, but there was a warmth. And you're right. Douglas uh, was never going to cotton up to uh, Felix Frankfurt. Why is that? What? Why was this oil and vinegar? Is that the right phrase? Oil and something rather. Yeah, oil and water, water maybe. Yeah, you know, I really love Mel's phrase, by the way. Early in my career, um, Mel described the four justices um, that you wrote about in your book, um, Black, uh, Frankfurter, Douglas, and Jackson, as the four prima donnas. And I, I kind of love that phrase. It is right? very good. It is. I, I just thought it summed up all of them, right? They both were hugely ambitious, right, in their own ways. I, I think Frankfurter really resented this idea of Bill Douglas as a possible presidential candidate, both in 1944, because there was a question whether Roosevelt would run again, right? Mm -hmm. And then again in 1948. And Frankfurter somehow saw that as unseemly, and more than that, he saw that as um, affecting Douglas's votes, right? Now, what the problem with Frankfurter's point of view is that he's engaged in all sorts of ethical <laughs> line crossing. He's advising members of the Roosevelt War Department while hearing cases um, like Korematsu about the internment of Japanese Americans or about um, the Nazi saboteurs, and he never should have been sitting on those cases about the Nazi saboteurs now, and Japanese is, is internment. This a question, is, sorry to interrupt, but is this a question of Frankfurter simply being unable to recognize, to understand why it is that he rubs so many people the wrong way? 
Douglas was a, I don't want to say gregarious guy, but people liked Douglas. Because when you read the personal accounts from the insiders about the court, Stanley Reed has the best description ever, I quoted in my book, ever about how Frankfurter tried to persuade people. He said that it was like a fly, Frankfurter was like a fly buzzing around his head that he couldn't swat away. That's what Frankfurter was, and apparently he never understood that people didn't like that. In the same way, he never understood that other justices didn't like him lecturing them for 50 minutes during their Saturday conferences. Yeah, and I think the 50 minutes. Frankfurter had a limitation, a, a, a self-awareness limitation. I, I think there's some truth to that. I think the 50-minute thing may be a bit of an exaggeration, right? It kind of sounds good. And, and you know, you, you're right. Uh, he wouldn't leave Stanley Reed alone. But I got to say, I don't think he thought Stanley Reed was very smart, right? Well, that's and, true. You're right about that. You know, and, and I, I think he treated people who he thought were really smart differently um, than, than, than people who he didn't think were very smart, right? And, uh, and, you know, that's a problem too, right? But, like, he had a great relationship with Robert Jackson, right? Robert Jackson also hated William O. Douglas. And I kind of object. I think William O. Douglas is a visionary and incredibly smart and he wrote some groundbreaking opinions, but I would not call him either an extrovert or very nice to his law clerks. Frankfurter was- Let me, let me, I I wanna jump in and tell you about something I've been thinking about. And that is the real difference between Frankfurter and Douglas, that different approach to being a justice. And I think this really applies to Frankfurter is that in his letters, Douglas several times, not just in the published letters, uh, Mel Urofsky came out with a very nice uh, collection, but there are also other letters that are available. Douglas says about almost everybody on the court, he says, he got there on his own steam, his own merit. That's how he got to the court. He had respect for the mere fact that people got there. You use Stanley Reed as an example. Frankfurter hated Stanley Reed's lack of qualifications and never gave him the proper respect as a justice. And I'm going to suggest to you, maybe you can rebut me easily, that that's in a way what got Frankfurter into trouble. He never had enough respect for his colleagues. I don't know. I, I disagree with what you say about Stanley Reed. Uh, you know, uh, Tom Corcoran came to Frankfurter and asked him, who should I put on the, who should Roosevelt put on the court? And Frankfurter said Stanley Reed. Who yes, was Stanley but, but Reed's Brad, you have a chief advisor? You have a oh, section in your book where you talk about Frankfurter, I think it's in his journals, talking about how stupid he thinks he is. Right, but that's different than his qualifications to be a justice, right? That's after they got on the court together and his his mode of decision-making in Supreme Court cases. I think that's a little bit different, right? I, I don't I, think- I, he, I see your point, I see your point. Okay. So I don't think he thought that, that Stanley Reed was unqualified to be on the Supreme Court. I think he thought Stanley Reed did an admirable job as as SG, um, he he was a great improvement over Homer Cummings, who was FDR's um, prior SG. Um, uh, and and Stanley Reed hired a lot of great people in his office um, to work for him. And I think Frankfurter really admired um, the job that Stanley Reed did during a really difficult time. Right in that 35-36 period where the Supreme Court striking everything down, Stanley Reed fainted before the Supreme Court of the United States um, when giving an oral argument trying to um, defend one of the federal government's programs. And who is he calling on before all these oral arguments and after? It's Felix Frankfurter. So I don't think Frank 
he's been through the wars with Frankfurter. I think Frankfurter was just disappointed with his kind of legal thinking once he became a judge. All right. This is too much inside baseball. And I say this to a man who wrote a book about baseball. Uh, I'll just leave you with one idea. Fred Vinson. The things he said about Vinson when he was dead. My God. Anyway, we've got to jump ahead. But can I ask you one thing? Can I ask you one thing about Vinson? Do you think anybody admired Fred Vinson as a chief justice? Oh, no. Admire is not the right word. No, no, no. Of course not. Um, He wasn't. Of course, you have Charles Evans Hughes as this looming uh, representative of what a great justice, uh, chief justice would be. Well, they also had trouble with Harlan Fist Stone as the chief he justice. He did. He did. Oh, no, no. For, um, I just think it was such bad taste. Of course, he didn't know it was going to show up in history. Such bad taste for Frankfurter to say, oh, there is a God. Fred Vincent is dead. I'm paraphrasing, of course. So, sure. But let's talk about the, the, the 50s and the uh, Brown versus Board of Education case. And then we want to jump to the 60s and the apportionment case. So tell me about where Frankfurter stood First with Brown and then with uh, the Baker versus Carr. Is that the case? Sure. Yes. Okay. Well, I think Brown is, is and Bill and I, you, you, we probably agree that the most important case for the court as an institution in the 20th century um, was Brown versus Board of Education, right? Um, the, the court overturning a long line of, of quote unquote separate but equal cases that enabled the South to pass Jim Crow laws um, that made um, African-American second class citizens. And although Brown was limited to education, um, it was seen as a watershed moment for the court as standing up for the rights of equal citizenship of African-Americans and really enforcing the promise of the 14th Amendment. And of course, that decision in 1954 was unanimous. What most people don't know about was how hard it was for the court as an institution to arrive at that unanimity. You had two different chief justices on the court. Um, It was argued during the 1952 term when Fred Vinson, who didn't have a lot of the respect of his colleagues, um, was the chief justice. And then in 53, Earl Warren was a recess appointment to the Supreme Court. He is the former governor of California. He did not have any constitutional law experience. Um, and, and Supreme Court advocacy experience, and he was really new, and he really um, relied on both Hugo Black and Felix Frankfurter for guidance and advice. And it was Frankfurter who was instrumental when Vincent was chief to say, hey, there's some outstanding issues here about the, the, the school desegregation cases. Let's re-argue them. And I think that re-argument and getting some of those questions off the table, particularly what what the history of the 14th Amendment was, um, I think was instrumental to getting a unanimous court in Brown versus Board of Education. And um, you asked me how I put this book together. One of the most interesting things that I found when I was researching the book um, was something that's quite simple. Earl Warren kept a calendar. And every time one of the justices visited him, he would write it down on a calendar. And that those critical kind of two month period from February of 1954 to April 1954, um, when Brown versus Board of Education was really decided. It was after Warren had been confirmed by the Senate, right? He really couldn't do anything until he'd been confirmed. So he gets confirmed in February. The decision comes down in April. And that's when all the really hard work of writing that opinion happens. And who visits Warren the most? 
during that period, it's Felix Frankfurter. Who visits him the second most? It's Hugo Black. And I know, uh, to me, those are two really important pieces of circumstantial evidence of really two people who recognized institutionally the court needs to speak in one voice on Brown versus Board of Education. And I think both Black and Frankfurter deserve a lot of credit for hoping, helping um, Earl Warren get there, that Earl Warren could not possibly have gotten there by himself as kind of a neophyte chief justice. Well, the irony there is that it wasn't Fred Vinson who was the, uh, the, the last obstacle. It was Robert Jackson who continued to believe until the end that if you followed precedent, the case should not go the way it did. It's in a way it's a stain on his his reputation that he thought that. Granted, he came around in the end and he voted as part of that unanimous court. But Lucas uh, Powell has a wonderful book about the Warren Court, and he has a wonderful section on Brown versus Board of Vacation. He really sets it out that this was an instance, this case, where it was we got to do the right thing. We're not just nitpicking lawyers here. We got to do the right thing. And Jackson had some problems with that which he obviously overcame by voting with the court. But of course, he was also on a hospital bed, so maybe that influenced the way he saw things. Yeah, I would just I would dissent from your view on Jackson, just in the sense that it, it's hard to know what Jackson's thinking when he's hospitalized um, with heart trouble. And, uh, you know, the conventional story is really that Stanley Reed um, is the last holdout and not um, Robert Jackson. It's Stanley Reed who tried to write a dissent. Right in longhand, and 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 Jack Fassett, who was Stanley Reed's law clerk, has donated some papers um, to the Supreme Court of the United States that really showed what Reed was trying to do, um, in dissent. And you know, Jackson wrote a concurrence, right, a concurring opinion, or at least a separate opinion, but it certainly mm -hmm. wasn't dissenting from the idea um, that um, racially segregated schools um, were unconstitutional. I think he was trying to think his way through the problem in sort of a lawyerly way. Well, I'll defer to your judgment on that one. I think you're probably right. I'm probably wrong about that. It's interesting that William Rehnquist played a role in all of this too, didn't he? He did. He wrote those memos, right? He wrote a memo for Robert Jackson. It was about three paragraphs long, and it said that Plessy versus Ferguson um, was right and should be reaffirmed. And of course, during his confirmation hearings in 1971, um, and again in, in 1986, it was ac actually after a 71 confirmation hearing that this memo came to light. So he um, sort of told the press, oh, those don't ref that memo doesn't reflect my <laughs> view, that reflects Jackson's views. And I don't think there's a single person um, who believes that William Rehnquist was telling the truth. I think you're right about that. So let's jump ahead to uh, Frankfurter's last big case. He writes a 62-page, is that what it is? Yeah. 62-page dissenting opinion in the apportionment case. Tell us about that and how that represents, in a way, his idea of the way the Supreme Court works within the tripart system that we have. Yeah, you know, um, B Baker v. Carr is a case about Tennessee reapportionment. And the state of Tennessee had not reapportioned its state legislature um, since um, 1900. And, and this wasn't a case of racial discrimination. I just want to make that clear because there's kind of a misconception um, about that case by non-lawyers. This was suburban League of Women Voters suing. Um, and, and their argument really was um, that suburban voters were, um, were being discriminated against uh, because of the way these districts were drawn and rural voters had much more say in what went on than suburban or urban voters. So there was no claim of kind of a racial discrimination here. 
The problem with that kind of claim, that the Tennessee's failure um, to reapportion since 1900 violates um, the, the League of Women Voters 14th Amendment, 14th Amendment rights is that the court for a long time said that these kinds of cases were political disputes and the court wasn't going to decide that type of political dispute um, because of what it called the political question doctrine. And Frankfurter as a huge believer in precedent, right? And a huge believer um, that the best way to cabin the Supreme Court's power is to respect precedent, right? Thought that, hey, um, we the political question doctrine is a real bulwark against an all-powerful Supreme Court. And he thought the Supreme Court should leave it up to the states or leave it up to the U.S. Congress to deal with the states. Now, I know that's not a great argument. And, and one more thing he thought. He thought the Supreme Court, and here's where I thought he's really vindicated, that the Supreme Court could not come up with a workable standard of, of determining which states' districts were really out of whack. You know, what, 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 what is a, an apportioned district and what is a malapportioned district? And he thought that the court was going to have a lot of trouble coming up with a standard in that regard. And I think in that respect, he turned out to be right. I, I also think he was right um, that the political question doctrine is an important break on the Supreme Court's power. And I, I just refer you to Bush v. Gore on that. Right. And where the Supreme Court interfered um, with the 2000 presidential election, I do not think Frankfurter was right on the merits of Baker versus Carr. Uh, you know, I, I do think um, that there is something to there was a way to decide this case in favor of the the voters who sued. Without eviscerating the political question doctrine and without saying, hey, we're going to decide this case on equal protection grounds and on standards that are well developed and familiar, because if you remember, this wasn't the one person, one vote case. Right. That was Reynolds versus Sims in 1964 after Frankfurter um, left the court. This was a case that was um, hotly contested. And Justice Brennan's opinion said um, this um, failure to reapportion since 1960 violates the Equal Protection Clause on standards that are. And this is a direct quote, well developed and familiar. And to me, that doesn't provide a lot of guidance to lower courts on how to decide um, whether some states um, electoral districts are malapportioned or not. So I, here's the great thing. And what was fun for me as a writer in Brown versus Board of Education, Frankfurter had the law clerk of all law clerks working for him during the 1952 term. He had Alexander Bickel, who was one of the greatest minds of constitutional law in the second half of the 20th century. Right. In Baker versus Carr, in the first term where Baker versus Carr was argued, he had the great Anthony Amsterdam who was one of the greatest criminal law professors of his generation. He's still alive. He taught at New York University Law School and, and University of Pennsylvania, and he argued Furman versus Georgia. Anthony Amsterdam was another one of these law clerks to beat all law clerks. So he had a lot of high-powered clerks working on his behalf, both in Baker um, and in Brown v. Board. And just for me, as a historian, it was really fun to see their handiwork in these cases and to see their back and forth with Frankfurter in these cases. All right, you did mention uh, Phil Elman. He was a clerk of all clerks, wasn't he? He was, and, and Elman came at the time where Frankfurter, I thought, kind of abdicated his role as a justice, right? He was, this was, you know, 1942, 1943, and 1944, and Frankfurter seemed more interest, interested in policy making in the War Department 
because he thought that World War II had the potential to be the war that ended civilization, right? He saw um, for, um, Adolf Hitler as an ex existential threat to the entire world. And so he basically spent all of his time advising um, Henry Stimson, who he helped install as Secretary of War, and John McCloy, who was Stimson's assistant, and I thought neglected his duties as a justice. And I said that in the book, right? I thought um, if Frankfurter would have been better suited to spending more time working on his opinions and thinking about those cases than War, war Department policymaking. And I, I thought um, he really went astray um, in some cases because he was too close um, to those people in the War Department. Certainly Phil Elman was an amazing law clerk. I don't think Phil Elman was of the same caliber as Alex Bickle or um, or um, Anthony Amsterdam. I think those two are really kind of visionaries when it comes to the law. I think Phil Elman, and I think he used this description about himself. He was much more of a workhorse of a of a, of a law of a law clerk and and less. But he had a, of, um, he had a legal intimate mind. relationship with Frankfurter. Frankfurter really trusted him. Really trusted him, and he has great papers at Harvard Law School in the Special Collections Division, where Frankfurter really says a lot of nasty things um, about a lot of justices. Um, so um, they were. It was a rich source um, of gossip for me. But yes, they were incredibly close. All right. Now, I wanted to get at this question of uh, why we should be talking about Frankfurter today, and I want to ask you an unfair question, which is. What would Frankfurter think if he were with us today about how the Supreme Court in its um, jurisprudence has evolved over the last 60 years, especially when it comes to individual rights? What do you think he would say about where we are today? And I'm not talking just about the recent uh, uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade. I'm just talking about the general jurisprudential approach that the court has taken over the last several decades since he's left. Well, the first thing I'm going to say, Bill, is just issue a, a lawyerly disclaimer that this is what historians shouldn't do, is engage <laughs> in this sort of presentism, and then I'm going to do it anyway, just for fun, okay? I think he would be horrified by the way the Supreme Court of the United States is willing to insert its policy views when it comes to federal legislation. And I want to just pick a couple of cases that I think would really horrify him. First of all, I think City of Bernie versus Flores, um, where the court um, really um, restricts Congress's power to enforce the 14th Amendment. I think he, th he would think that case is horrifying, right? Another case um, that I think he would have been outraged by um, is Shelby County versus Holder, where um, the US Congress um, almost unanimously reauthorizes the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and then the Supreme Court strikes part of it down and really guts it in the name of something that's not in the text of the Constitution, the equal sovereignty principle. I think he'd be horrified by that. And then I think lastly, um, I think he would really, he, he really could not believe that the Supreme Court of the United States would have come within a hair's breadth of overturning the Affordable Care Act, which was the greatest piece of redistributive legislation probably in my lifetime, right? He would have said that was certainly within the federal government's powers, both as a matter of commerce and necessary and proper and spending, and that that greatly affects, he would have been horrified by um, the amount of rancor over that case and, and would have certainly um, voted to uphold um, all three of those federal laws um, now, about individual rights, 
To get to your question, Frankfurter thought precedent was important. I think Frankfurter would not like it if the court overturned a precedent that people had relied on that was enhancing people's rights over a 50 or 60 year period. And yes, I'm talking about Roe versus Wade, right? He thought precedent was an important break on the Supreme Court's power. So um, he would not have um, in the name of originalism or textualism or some other constitutional theory been eager as this court seems to be to overturn precedent, right? And to say, to prefer free exercise rights over 14th Amendment rights, I'm going to overturn these precedents, right? Even on on gun rights, right? I think he would have been really skeptical of Supreme Court precedents that are overturning years and years of precedents that people have, have relied on. Well, I come back to what uh, Charles Fried said when it comes to the Dobbs decision, that it was an act of vandalism. I, I think that's the most brilliant crystallization of what the court was up to. And you're right, Frankfurter would have had 50 years of precedent, 50 years of people relying on it. All right, so why should we be talking, aside from your, your, your very nice pro style and your wonderful photographs and your wonderful research, why should we be talking about Felix Frankfurter today? Because Felix Frankfurter believed that people should seek change from the democratic political process and that we shouldn't outsource all of our problems to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the reason why is because he thinks that, and I think liberals are guilty of this to some degree, right, over the last um, 30 years or so, right, certainly before uh, 2016, um, much of the liberal political strategy was, um, can we, if only we can find the fifth vote, if only we can find the right argument to persuade um, Justice Kennedy, then we can get X, Y, or Z, right? And, and I, I think Frankfurter said, hey, you shouldn't look to the court to solve all of your problems. You should look um, to the elected branches. And the court, as you said at the beginning of our talk, um, should really play a much more limited role in when it reviews federal laws and, and, and you know, less so with state laws, but on federal law should be much more deferential and should only overturn a federal law unless it's unconstitutional beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, he, he thinks that the, that the Supreme Court, when it's really outside of its lane, the way it seems to be right now, is acting anti-democratically and is really subverting our democracy. And, and so I think Frankfurter's philosophy of judicial restraint um, is really kind of meeting the moment in some ways, right? People are starting to realize that, hey, we don't want five or six justices on the Supreme Court to make all of our major policy decisions. We do want these things decided by our elected um, representatives in Congress and in the White House. I was just thinking of what Frankfurt would have made of uh, Clarence Thomas, given what uh, Scalia once said about Thomas. He apparently he was joking, but he said that Thomas doesn't even believe in precedent. Yeah, I, I think we've got some evidence of that, right? And but but you know that really put Bill just to go back to our conversation earlier. It put him out of step with a lot of his Warren Court colleagues, right? You know, it put him out of step with his former student Bill Brennan, right? Who was super smart and able, right? But you know, Bill Brennan and I agree with his decisions both in Cooper versus Aaron and Baker versus Carr, just as a matter of outcome. But when you start talking about the Supreme Court as the ultimate constitutional interpreter 
as he did in Baker versus Carr. You know, that's giving the Supreme Court a level of power that it really doesn't have. Right. It doesn't say anywhere in the Constitution that the Supreme Court has the last word on the Constitution, nor does Marbury versus Madison. If you believe it in his read it in his political context, nor does Marbury really say that. Right. Marbury really ducks the hard questions, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis making the Jefferson administration, giving Will, William Marbury his, his commission. And, and I think Frankfurter um, was really trying to. Um, slow the Warren courts roll a little bit in, in those grand assertions of power. And I think that resonates today where we have a, a Supreme Court that doesn't really seem to be bound by precedent, doesn't have a problem overturning federal um, laws it doesn't like. And, and um, you know, that's why I think Frankfurter's philosophy is relevant today. Did he get all of the decisions um, when he was on the court right? Absolutely not. No justice did. Was his temperament great? No. But was his philosophy relevant to our current political landscape? Absolutely. Okay. Well, I want to, uh, in the last few minutes, ask you a different question. I was telling you uh, before we started recording about what Mark Tushnet had told me about how much time he had spent uh, writing his Holmes Devise history of the 1930s of the Supreme Court. I want to ask you, uh, how much time did you spend working on this book? Because when you look through your list of resources, the the body of, I mean, you looked at papers everywhere in the country, it looks like. You read everything that's uh, pertinent. How long did it take you to write this book, and how did you go about doing it? Here's the challenge of writing a Frankfurter biography, Bill, and I'm not trying to be um, arrogant or, or um or self-aggrandizing. The problem with, with writing about Frankfurter, and I think the reason why nobody had written a full-length biography about him is this man wrote 10 to 15 letters a day, right? In this day and age, he would have been a tweeter, a blogger, um, an Instagrammer, <laughs> right? You name it, right? He would have been on every social media site there is. But, you know, in his time, there was no social media, so he just sent letters out everywhere. And for someone like me who is an archive, rat and loves to be in the archives um, reading other people's mail, um, that's a, both a blessing and a curse because um, Frankfurter's letters are scattered not only all over the country, but really all over the world. And some of the best letters I found um, were um, in Isaiah Berlin's papers, for example, um, were great letters both from Frankfurter and from his wife Marion, but also from Joe Alsop about what um, Frankfurter and Felix and Marion were up to. Right. And um, even letters from um, one of the three British children that Frankfurter took in during the bombing of Britain during World War II. I visited him at his home. Sadly, he's no longer with us. He died of cancer over this summer. But um, but Oliver Gates let me into his home and let me see just this treasure trove of letters, wow. not only um, to the Gates family, um, but also Oliver's father, Sylvester had been Frankfurter's research assistant on the Sacco and Vanzetti book. Um, so it was really daunting to, to go to all these archives, but it was like a treasure hunt. And it was really, really fun. I can't tell you how much I love doing it, but it took a long time, right? I'd say I've been looking at Frankfurter as this kind of white whale ever since I started in the Legal Academy um, in 2009, right? And you know, ever since then, I've been kind of going to archives and I wrote a book that about the House of Truth that involved Frankfurter. And then I said, well, I've tackled the pre-court years and now I'm going to do the 
court years. And so what I what I did was, Bill, I basically when I started writing and researching the book, I started in 1939 and wrote forward and researched forward. And so I would break this up chapter by chapter. I had an outline of 40 chapters. The book is 40 chapters. And I basically started writing in 1939 until I got to the end of his court years. And then I just started at the beginning. <laughs> wow. So that's how I did it. Well, what about this? There's this observation that a lot of people think has uh, wisdom in it, that uh, a biographer, by the time he finishes, doesn't like his subject very much, sometimes just hates the subject. How do you uh, feel about that? I didn't end up hating Frankfurter, but I certainly saw his flaws. I think I'd, I just to like kind of quote a line about George W. Bush. I think I'd like having a beer with Frankfurter, mm -hmm. right? I think I'd like um, having dinner with Frankfurter. Um, but I certainly saw his weaknesses, both as a judge and as a scholar. And, um, you know, I didn't end up hating him. I really didn't. He, he lived a fascinating life. When you're friends with every president from Theodore Roosevelt to Lyndon Johnson, right? And that speaks to his sort of longevity as a person, right? He, he lived to be 83 years old, right? Um, but when you, you're friends with all of those people, it can't help but be a, a fascinating journey and a fascinating life. It was really fun. All right. So what's next for you on the front of scholarship and book writing? Well, the first, my first goal was to do something shorter, that no more 40 <laughs> chapter books um, that end up being 700 pages. Um, but I got really interested in the story of a black communist named Angelo Herndon, who was charged in 1932 with attempting to incite insurrection. And that was a capital crime in the state of Georgia. What, what Herndon really was doing was he was organizing black and white unemployed workers and peacefully protesting for more unemployment relief from Fulton County officials at the height of the Great Depression. But this was a capital crime. He was tried by an all-white jury. The jury, um, the jury gave him, granted mercy on him. Their mercy, they convicted him, but the mercy on him was 18 to 20 years of hard labor on a Georgia chain gang. Nobody ever um, lived more than 10 years on a Georgia chain gang. So that was really a death sentence. Herndon's mm -hmm. case twice goes up to the Supreme Court of the United States. Once um, in 1935, um, where it's dismissed for um, failing to raise the constitutional issues in the state court properly. And it goes up again during the 1936 term. And a couple of months after the switch in time, um, they rule 5-4 in Herndon's favor. And there's an amazing cast of characters that get involved um, with Herndon's defense. Everyone from the historian C. Van Woodward to the federal appeals court judge Albert Tuttle to um, uh, Herbert Wexler when he's a young um, Columbia law professor. Charles Hamilton Houston um, can persuades the NAACP who wants, which wants nothing to do with the Communist Party, that if they don't get on in on the Herndon case, um, they will turn their back on everything the NAACP stands for. And finally, you have a patrician lawyer, Whitney North Seymour, who, mm -hmm. um, who argues that case before the Supreme Court twice um, pro bono. And another person who does a real star turn and doesn't get a lot of, of publicity in, in Supreme Court history is Owen Roberts, right? That swing vote on that court in 1937 ends up writing the opinion 
in Herndon's favor. So I do a deep dive into Hern, um, um, Owen Roberts. Each chapter does kind of a deep dive in another character involved in the case. So I'm working yeah, on it. Sounds that fascinating. Well. It really does. I look forward to reading that. Thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity, Bill, to talk about my work. There's so few places where you can um, talk with another um, great constitutional historian about how books are written and what they say. Well, when I find one, I'll bring them in. Uh -huh. uh, well, Brad, you've been a great guest. You really have. Uh, it's clear that we, we don't agree on everything, but you've done what all good writers are supposed to do, which is to present an idea in a way that provokes. And you really have done a great uh, job in your book. I really admire all the work you put into it. I mean, I did a little bit of uh, uh, Frankfurt archival research. I, isn't there one set of of uh, papers from Harvard that's on microfilm that will travel? I think uh, I think I looked at those. But there was just too much for me to, to uh, digest in my short book. Um, so I really admire what you've done, and it's a good book, and people should get it because not only is it about Frankfurter, it's about his times, not just the 30s, but the 40s and 50s. You really cover everything. So if, for instance, you have an interest in Alger Hiss, you have a wonderful little chapter um, or a segment of a chapter on Alger Hiss and uh, the pumpkin papers. <laughs> so, all right, so I'm gonna uh, um, conclude our recording here and you will stay on for a minute while I talk with you. Um, but again, I'm delighted I was able to get you on for an hour and a half. So I'm very lucky to uh, have gotten you for that long. Well, Bill, so I just wanna uh, publicly, publicly thank you for doing this. For all historians and writers of nonfiction books, I mean, you're performing a great service in giving us a fora uh, to talk. So I appreciate well, what's it. What's amazing about this new books network is that uh, people download these things. They really do. I, I, when I try to get a new, I hope that's not coming across. My phone's ringing. When I try to get new guests, I tell them that uh, I've had uh, several podcasts that have been downloaded more than 10,000 times. So it might be they don't end up buying the book, but they end up knowing a lot more than they did before about the subject. And actually, I suspect a lot of people do buy the books and they should buy yours because as I said, it's this kind of comprehensive look at the country through the lens of Felix Frankfurter. That's what it is. And that's something that really is worthwhile. So let me uh, conclude again. Thanks for doing this with me, Brad. Um, Thanks, Bill. Okay.